and welcome back to the Glass Frog Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jen Puma. And I'm your co-host, Rebecca Casciano. We have to give a real shout out to the AEA 365 blog, because without it, we would have never met this month's guest, Teresa McCaffrey. So Jen is our resident teacher's pet. (laughs) She is an avid reader of the 365 blog. She doesn't miss a day, folks. Well, I don't know. I don't know if she's catching all 365 posts. It's pretty close, Beck, though. It's pretty close. Yeah, she belongs in some kind of loyal readers club. They should do a 365 blog post on you just because of how loyal you are to reading the post. I, I don't know if I've reached those heights yet. I don't know if I'm worthy to be in it, but but go on, go, go we on. We can all aspire to something. Yeah, so exactly. she's constantly checking the blog for the latest and greatest from the AEA. And today we are all the beneficiaries of Jen's fealty to the 365 blog because a recent post featured the work of Teresa McCaffrey. So Teresa is the Director of Research Evaluation and Innovation at the Educational Partnership Center, also called EPC, at UC Santa Cruz. And what grabbed our attention, well, first Jen's attention, and then she she passed it along to me, Mm -hmm. was, okay, so what grabbed our attention was Teresa's work on a collective impact model at EPC. So I was particularly excited about this because one of the big trouble spots we see in our work and throughout the nonprofit sector is when there are dozens of small to mid-sized nonprofits working on basically the same issue and no overarching theory of change to show how their work either contributes uniquely to a common goal or complements other organizations as they work toward that common goal. It ends up feeling to me like everyone has their own little fiefdom and there's no kind of coherent plan for how each organization and uniquely or in concert with other organizations is working toward the same goal. That's why I raised this to you, Beck, because I know that this is a pet peeve of yours. So I knew I was barking up the right tree with uh, this particular post and Teresa's work because like Teresa and the Educational Partnership Center are like on the case, as it were, when it comes to this issue because EPC manages 10 programs and the bulk of those programs, there's a couple one-offs, but the bulk of them are providing college pipeline services to high school students. And they recognize kind of the challenges you're talking about, Rebecca, to managing programs and silos. And so they've worked to create this collective impact model that clearly articulates how these programs work both independently and in concert with each other to achieve the goal of improving educational outcomes for students in the area around UC Santa Cruz. So in doing this, what they did, their starting point was to create a collective logic model. And then they moved on to creating a shared measurement system and then even like a set of tools and systems for managing to these shared outcomes. So they were really comprehensive in their approach. I mean, Teresa has been heavily involved in the creation of the tools and the systems and in particular, the training of the staff to institutionalize this model because it's not like, you know, build it and they will come, you know, they, the, the EPC created this for their suite of programs, but they, they really had to get the programs on board because it really meant in some cases, maybe doing things a little bit differently than they were used to doing. And so there was this culture change and, and change management piece to it as well. In addition to like this technical piece of like, how do we envision our logic model? How do we create these shared measurement systems? So it, it, it was a really 
comprehensive conversation that we had with Teresa about the challenges that she and the EPC have faced in operationalizing the model, as well as some of the, the wins that they've seen after they've like gone through the, the, the pain <laughs> of, of setting up this model. Yeah, so we really enjoyed our conversation with Teresa, and we recommend that funders or nonprofits that are managing a portfolio of related programs give this episode a listen. It may move you to consider pursuing a collective impact model, or if you're already using a methodology like this, just hearing about the challenges and successes that Teresa highlights will resonate with you and maybe give you some ideas for how you could improve the work that you're already doing. Mm -hmm. And she was lovely, like Rebecca said, lovely to talk to. And I'm sure she would be a resource to anyone who wanted to really pick her brain about the nitty gritty. She was really passionate about the work. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link to the 365 blog post on our website, but that would be a good place to start in addition to listening to the episode. So speaking of today's episode, Mm -hmm. Jen, do we have an unwitting sponsor lined up? Do we ever, Rebecca? So this is the first episode in which our sponsor is directly connected with our guest. You know, I'm going to say for our listeners out there, you you might have had the wool pulled over your eyes. Teresa McCaffrey, Irish surname that it is, she is actually a Spaniard through and through. We talk a bit about this at the outset of our conversation, and she's very passionate about her Spanish heritage. And so in her honor, we were able to pull some strings and lock in an influencer within the Spanish culture, as it were. That's right, friends. Today's sponsor is everyone's favorite cold soup, if I'm giving it away already, gazpacho. I did not have any gazpacho this summer. After talking to Teresa, I had wanted to go back and and have some, but then it just didn't happen. I was actually sourcing recipes, and I came across a recipe that reminded me of a type of gazpacho that I really like, but I'm I'm not sure if I should be embarrassed to say that I like it. So Jen, have you ever had fruit gazpacho? You know, I I have. First, I'm going to rib you for your absence on the gazpacho front because gazpacho is very big in our households. Secondary sponsor, we have a Vitamix. Vitamix is not paying us folks for this advertising. Gazpacho is super easy to make in the Vitamix, by the way. We don't Uh, have a Vitamix. We have like a circa 1984 blender that may or may not chop things that you put inside of it. And it's, it's difficult and time intensive for us to, to make. No wonder you're not making the gazpacho. That's, no. It's going to open up a whole new world if you got the right tools. Well, so are, uh, you, are you allowed to have fruit gazpacho? I don't know. I feel like the best race of this question. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the authority here, so I don't know. But I will say the first time I ever had gazpacho, it was a fruit gazpacho. And I felt very sophisticated because I was in the eighth grade. I just graduated the eighth grade. And my quote aunt, you know, like everyone has the neighbor who who you call like aunt, who's like not related to you, but that's how you refer to them. So my aunt Lucine, for my graduation, took me to my first Broadway play. It was Phantom of the Opera. And we went first to this restaurant in Weehawken, right on the water. And we had like a a lunch, like a fancy lunch. And we were going to a matinee of Phantom of the Opera. And it was like a prefix prefix lunch, which I, I was like, it was 
in my, my brain at the time, I was like this French lunch. And then I had this like cold soup. I didn't know soup came cold. I didn't even know how to say the word gazpacho, let alone prefix lunch. Like I was like, pre, pre I, there were so many, my world was like, my horizons were expanding exponentially in that day. And um, part of the prefix lunch was this gazpacho soup. And I, I loved it. And it was not, I remember it being fruit because I think at the time my palate was very limited. And if I had understood that it was tomatoes, I would not (laughs) sadly have eaten it. But I remember it being a fruit gazpacho. And that was, and I, I totally forgot about it until you said fruit gazpacho, but it made me feel very sophisticated. And it was just like part of the I don't know, it was a very grown up day and like a, a milestone. So gazpacho holds a dear place in my heart because it's like associated with this very special day that I had with my aunt. And it was like, I don't know, I, I felt like a, a young lady <laughs> at my lunch. Oh, it's a real coming of age story. It was. It was. I, didn't, I didn't see this going there. And yet here we are. Here I, I am. Yeah, that's I'm my like, story. You know what? Who doesn't love a cold soup, folks? Mm-hmm. I know it's fall, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Out, get your source as many vegetables as you can. Throw them in your Vitamix or your 1984 blender, and make some gazpacho. It doesn't matter what goes in it. What matters is that it's chilling and refreshing. Mm-hmm. And if you're still on the West Coast, it's probably still super hot anyway. So you can have gazpacho probably anytime, anywhere. Get your gazpacho. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the episode. Let's do it. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. It's just a pleasure to get to know you and get to know your work. We really wanted to start, both Jen and I are super interested in this idea of the collective model. And we wanted to start just by understanding a little bit more about how EPC started using it. So actually, so it's a collective impact model. And the EPC started using it before it even became a collective impact model. So I think it's uh, Kanye and Kramer laid out what a collective impact model was in this. I'm not sure what the year was, but in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And the EPC started before then. So it was really the vision of our faculty advisor, Catherine Cooper, who brought this to the EPC. And it was the idea that and she and the then director had the idea of of really trying to build off these different programs that have similar goals and help them buttress each other and work together instead of having kind of silos in our different programs. So it came about from their work in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And so, and the idea was also not just having the same mission and vision, but also the same measurable outcomes. And from that, evolve the integrated logic model, which Catherine Cooper has gone around the world talking about. And so the idea that not only do we have individual logic models for each of our programs, but then we have not all of our programs are in the integrated logic model, but we've brought some of them together into this integrated logic model. So it's really clear how we have, you know, the needs, we have the services that we're providing, and we have the short and long-term goals and how those interact together in those programs. And one of the things that we also do is oftentimes we have multiple programs in one school so that we can 
provide even more intense services in those schools or those districts because we have the funding from multiple programs to be able to do so. And since they're working towards similar goals and they are providing similar services, they can reinforce each other that way. I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm curious how you decided what programs would end up going in your collective impact model and what would end up staying outside of it. For the, in the integrated logic model? Oh, sorry. Yeah. In the integrated logic model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's kind of two different groups of programs in an outlier program in, we have nine programs at the EPC. The EPC is the Educational Partnership Center, and we have a group of programs that is focused on building college-going cultures, and we have a group of programs that are really focused on STEM, and some of those programs are also very heavily focused towards underserved kids, and some are a mix, and and one of them is not much of a mix at all. And then we have the California Reading and Literacy Program that's kind of off on its own. So the integrated logic model was developed with the programs that have the focus on college-going culture, building a college-going culture, and strong academics. And then the STEM programs, we're working to try to bring some of those STEM programs into the integrated logic model, but they have a more specific academic focus So it's a little bit different. But those programs do, especially two of them, MESA and Girls in Engineering, really are also focused on underserved kids. And they they do, we do roles and they do work together somewhat. But they're not part of that integrated logic model. That makes sense. So you're not trying to like fit a square peg into a round hole by like taking an outlier program and (laughs) trying to like... Yeah, yeah. And then like another one of our science programs the science internship program, which is a summer program, just came to the EPC and they started as a very serving a very elite group of kids. And that but then the the faculty director of that program has worked really hard to and now I think it's this summer, 30% of the kids were on full scholarship and it's a 10 week program and it's an expensive program. So mm-hmm. they're really working to fit in more in with our mission. I don't think it'll ever be a program that is only for underserved kids, but they're really working towards that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering who developed the programs that are in your portfolio and, and who is funding them? So there's a big range. We okay. have some programs. Our biggest programs are the Gear Up programs. We have three Gear Up programs, and those are federally funded programs. And then we also have a talent search program. That's another, it's a TRIO program. So it's a federally funded program for underserved kids. And then we have some state-funded programs. So we have Cosmos, which is a science and math program. It's a summer program. We have MESA, which is a STEM program for underserved kids. We have uh, CalSOAP, which is another state-funded program. And then we have some programs like the SIP program that I was talking about that are they're self-funded. And then what the faculty advisor and our director of fundraising have done is bring in um, is to get donations to be able to serve the other kids. And then we have like Girls in Engineering, which is... Actually, I'm not sure how they're funded. I think it's a foundation, but I'm not totally sure. So we have a wider range of funders and different programs. So who does EPC report to then? Like when you're collecting data on programs, it sounds like you could be kind of reporting out to multiple stakeholders potentially. We are. 
we definitely, we're ultimately have to report to our funders. Mm-hmm. And then who, like, how do you get these programs into your portfolio through UC Santa Cruz? If they're oh, kind of coming from all of these different funding sources, it's not... They don't. Oh. Yeah, they don't come through UC Santa Cruz. Oh. It's we apply for the different grants. or um, So then when there's a call for proposals, we answer those full proposals calls for proposals. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then some of them are just kind of like Mesa or Calso. It's just, they re-up the funding every year. Cosmos, they re-up the funding every year. I'm not, I mean, we have to report out on some things, but yeah. And then other programs like Talent Search or Gear Up, they have a specific number of years they're funded for. And then we have to submit another proposal if we want to get funded again. Got it. That's really helpful. That makes a lot of sense. And then before we move off of like the nuts and bolts question, can you refresh my memory? I think you said it right at the outset, but it would, if you could repeat it for me, like what is the mix of the age range of students that the programs are serving? I know you're doing middle school and high school, but is it like a 50-50 split or is it mostly middle school, mostly high school? It's mostly high school, actually. Yeah, there's just a couple of the programs that uh, Talent Search and Gear Up during some years also serve middle schools. The vast majority of our programs serve high school kids. Oh, and Girls in Engineering, sorry, also for middle school girls. Mm -hmm. So I know Jen said we were going to move away from nuts and bolts (laughs) questions, but I actually have one. And it's just mostly because I don't fully understand it yet. So what is the EPC's role in terms of management? like vis-a-vis these other organizations. It sounds like they all kind of operate independently and you're clearly like pulling together data across all these organizations, which we'll get to in a sec. But what else are you guys doing from like a management point of view? The EPC kind of is the organizational hub of all these different programs. So we have an executive director who ultimately oversees each of these programs. And then each of these programs has um, middle, they're called directors who are in charge of those programs. And so, and then there's assistant directors, depending on how large the program is. So there's a group of directors that meets once a week that are overseeing the day-to-day operations of the programs. And then depending on the size of the program, there may be other people also involved. And are these programs incubated at EPC or are they usually like created somewhere else and then brought into the fold once they're more developed? Yeah, most of the time we're applying for a specific programs that's already, I mean, we when we submit an application for a program, we have to submit the design. And um, so if, when there's a call for proposal, we have to set out how we're going to meet the goals of the proposal. Well, we have to even lay out our own outcomes and all that kind of thing. So we have to identify the needs and we have to identify the services that we're going to provide to meet those needs and that our our outcomes, our goals, right? But for instance, like the Cosmos program or the MESA program, those are statewide programs. The Cosmos program is a UC program. It brings kids to several UC campuses in the summer to do deep work in science and math. The MESA program is a statewide program that it works underserved schools to help develop science and math. Again, CalSOAP is a state-run program trying to develop college-going cultures and supporting academics. So this might be the key to your question now I'm thinking about it, is that each University of California school has 
an equivalent center to the educational partnership center. And they're considered outreach centers, although none of them are recruiting, are trying to recruit directly for their UC. But the idea is, and in fact, the vast majority of our kids don't go to UCs, they go to community college, but it's each of the UCs has something that sits there to help try to help bring underserved kids in their communities to college. Does that help? That helps a lot. Yeah, I didn't realize that this was something. And so you guys are kind of overseeing programming in your region, but there might be another one at UC Berkeley and another one at UCLA. There is one at every single UC. Yeah, that's important information. Got it. And does the UC Santa Cruz, that kind of collective impact model, is that the same model being used at other UC campuses or is it something kind of unique to you guys? It's something unique to us. I mean, other programs, um, the one that I know the best is UC Berkeley because I have a professional relationship with somebody there, but they don't have an integrated logic model, but they definitely have a variety of different programs. And some of the programs are ones we have and some are different ones. But the idea of working and reinforcing like this, I, I, I believe is unique to UC Santa Cruz. Oh, cool. Great. So can you guys, can you walk us through a little bit like how you ended up with this kind of shared evaluation or measurement system? What, sure. what, was there something that happened that led to that or was <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Catherine Cooper again created this idea of the integrated logic model and, and of, uh, having these reinforcing programs. And when I got to the Educational Partnership Center uh, almost four years ago, we were using a different data management system. And so I didn't find that to be the most efficient way of moving forward. And the data management systems were also of varying usability. And so we looked into finding one that would work across programs because the idea was that then we could look at our services and our outcomes across the services. And I, I believe that this idea came from also Catherine Cooper through Maria Rocha Ruiz, our um, executive director. And so we were able to find Lakai, the data management system that we use that was originally developed for a TRIO program called Educational Talent Search, which we have, but then they've been willing to ad- adapt it to so that it, start, it can work for all of our programs. So that took us to the next idea of creating a coding scheme where we have different objectives that cut across all our programs. And so those are categories, our our objective categories are supporting academics, learning about college, family services, supporting financial aid, preparing and registering for testing. So like SAT, ACT, and learning about careers. And those are across all our programs and we have those color coded. So that's one column. And then, and each of those objectives has a different color. And then we subdivided the objectives into activities. So for instance, supporting academics was subdivided into advising, mentoring, tutoring, field trips, and summer programs. So that was across programs. However, each program doesn't necessarily have to have an act, a service that fits into this activity. And then we created a column for each program where we list the services for each activity as applicable. And we call those by the program names. So for instance, let's take advising. For one program, they have that subdivided into group advising, individual advising, and individualized academic plan meeting. 
for an, an individualized academic plan is basically a four-year plan. So when the kid enters high school, they have a four-year plan of classes that they will take that will lead them to be college eligible. Then we have an, for another program, those that's subdivided into transcript review, academic prep courses, and education plans, which is another way of calling the individualized academic plan. And yet another program, it's academic college advising and planning, individual success plan. So again, that a new name for the individualized academic plan or the four-year plan, and then check-in for students who are at risk of failure. So we were able to create these big buckets that capture what we're looking at across all the programs, but then each program was able to have their own names, which was really important to them, and also that they didn't have to have a service that fit each of the buckets. Yeah, and so... Are on a kind of within like a program cycle. I'm just trying to understand how it plays out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Our, sure. Is the executive director managing to each of the kind of like respective outcomes in their like respective categories? And it might just look a little bit different because everybody is kind of working on something different, even though there's some overlap across programs. So the executive director is is really the high level person. And then it's the directors or the managers that are actually making sure that they're hitting all of these objectives. And so then with Lakai, what we're able to do is to produce reports that show progress to these objectives at any time. So one of the reasons we thought Lakai would be a good system for us is that you can do scanning, or it's, it's very easy if not, if people don't want to scan students in to enter the data so that we could have up-to-date reports at any time. Our previous systems were so complicated that people had to send in paper contact sheets and then we had undergraduate students entering them and we were like three months behind. So you never knew exactly where you were. But with Lakai, we were able to keep things up to date and then managers can run reports to see, you know, okay, have, you know, it's October, it's really important that our kids be working on their college applications. Have we been meeting with, you know, our seniors to help them with that process or with to complete the FAFSA form or or whatever, you know, in that moment is important for them to be doing. So they are the ones who are really managing the day-to-day application and use of the system to make sure that we're providing the services that the students need to be able to obtain our goals. I'm curious how the transition to the unified system went over uh, across all the programs. Was it, was it well received? It was all over the place. <laughs> Some people saw that it was awesome from day one and were super excited. And some people had to, it had to be mandated that they, they get onto the system. Yeah. So, and some people were kind of in between like, oh, okay, well, I guess, you know, but initially didn't see how useful it would be, but then came around. Right. And then, and it's interesting. I mean, I think that happens with any kind of change, you know, there's a gradient (laughs) of of where people are at accepting change. And what we tried to do was we really tried to tap into the, the really enthusiastic people. And at staff meetings, have them lead and show, well, this is how I'm using my reports. And, you know, like we are running reports for our homework centers and we're giving prizes to the kids who come, the top three kids who come the most in a month, right? To get to the, to do their homework in the homework center are getting a prize and we're putting their name up on the wall and things like that. So different ideas like that of how they were using Lakai. 
And then we actually had, you know, it was very interesting. One of the people who was just like, I'm very nervous. I don't want to, you know, very reluctant to get on to look, I had to be mandated. And then he and his team got on board and they were the ones who really started, like, you know, signing with scanning the kids. And so you never kind of know where things are going to end up, but there was definitely a range. <laughs> it's funny. I, Anecdotally, I've seen in some like teacher PD programs that there are teachers that you could tell like in the PD that they're like the reluctant ones. They're like the hard sell. And then uh, it doesn't always happen this way, but that I've, I've seen some of those teachers like turn around and be like the biggest advocates for mm -hmm. the program. So it, it does. I think you just got to earn it from them a little bit more yeah. yeah but it must and be it, proof that it works so if if your tough customer is on board with it now yeah and I wasn't here when the integrated logic model came into being um so I talked with Catherine on Friday to see um to see how that well it was arranged <laughs> and so I'm kind of wondering in my head I'm picturing it as a as like a matrix where you were describing like the objectives the activities the way everything is sort of like mapping together mm -hmm. Did EPC come up with that categorization on its own? And was there any like vetting process that, or not vetting maybe isn't the right word, but did you let the programs weigh in or did you kind of handle that taxonomy behind the scenes? Yeah, it was a combination. So um, I looked at all the logic models for our programs and um, also at their data management systems and what were they tracking? and created the initial beast. And it is a beast. Shared it. We have it in a, um, in a Google Sheet. And so then shared it with the directors and offered for them to also share it with their field staff. And they gave feedback on it. And so it was a combined effort. But yeah, the base, we had to, I had to do it. And then I actually also had my team in, in research and evaluation take a look at it and give feedback before even sharing it with the directors. And I also shared it with Catherine, our faculty advisor, just to get her feedback um, before sharing it. So a lot of people had input into it even before the directors did. And then they had a, a look at it. And I think that, again, one thing that really helped was for them to be able to see that the names hadn't changed and that we weren't asking them to provide services because I think one of the things is, you know, budgets are so tight and people are so stretched so thin that as soon as you start asking people to do something else, they become really concerned. And so this wasn't about like asking them to do something that they weren't already doing. It was just laying it all out so that we could see how it all came together across the EPC. As you've been talking, I've been like plucking out some best practices, I'll call them, for like how you went through this mm -hmm. change, you know, because you mentioned change management and that that was like a central theme and like getting people on board, the ways that you got people on board at different points. So I've been trying to pluck those out, but maybe could you offer up your thoughts on like a couple of... I, I guess maybe like if you were to give advice to someone who wanted to do this what would you advise them on based on like what you guys learned in, in going through this integrated logic model process? Yeah. So I was talking to Catherine about that on Friday and I just realized that we did the same thing with the coding scheme. One is to make it really transparent, you know, like with the example of the coding scheme that we put it into a Google sheet and then everybody got to have feedback. And I think that another one is that 
to go with the early adopters and let the other people come in. And again, you can be surprised sometimes about who ends up being your champion, right? But that that you give them the chance to see the process and give feedback in the process. And then that you, you have to start with the early adopters. Because I think if you try to get everybody on board, you'll never get anything started because there's always going to be somebody who's too busy or too change adverse or too something, right? To be able to do it right off the bat. And I think the final thing is to just allocate sufficient time to have difficult conversations. And actually something that I just thought of right now is to also leverage your your early adopters. So I was just thinking about when we switched to Lakai, one of the things that we did at a staff meeting was have, we have different types of service providers So we have like the managers and we have the college facilitators or academic advisor. They're called different things depending on the program. And we have the family involvement coordinator. So what we did at one of the staff meetings when we were transitioning was actually have them meet in groups. And we we chose the groups. So we had people from different regions, different programs, but in the same job type meet together. And we were very careful about putting some of the, the early adopters and champions in with some with the more reluctant people. But that way, people got a chance to talk about, okay, how can I use this in my work? And it gave them ideas. And it also gave them a chance to talk to somebody who maybe was less threatening or perceived as, you know, less of an authority person coming in and saying, you have to do this and say, you know, I'm concerned about this. Tell me what you've done and why it's working for you. I think it can be much more motivational to adopt something when it's coming from your peer who's using it already and does similar work and is in a similar context. It becomes also harder to say, you know, this can't possibly work for me when it's working from somebody who's using it. And the final thing about that is that, you know, before we adopted Lakai, I had never used Lakai. So I was no expert. The people on the field are the ones using it day in and day out. They, they found ways of using it that we would never have thought of, right? And so, it get, I mean, the expertise is really in them. And it makes that very clear that we honor their expertise and their knowing and their, that they are the ones that, that really hold the knowledge and should pers- be the ones persuading other people. You said something before about kind of having a willingness to have the difficult conversations. And it it led me to a question about how you handle within this kind of collective group, the possibility that sometimes one organization is going to do really well, mm-hmm. <laughs> or one program is going to do really mm-hmm. well, and another program is going to struggle. How does that play out in a collective impact model? Is there ever a sense of competitiveness or maybe just a sense of reluctance to share information because they feel Mm -hmm. like it's not going to reflect well on them? Mm -hmm. I think there is sometimes. I mean, one of the things when we're looking at the data itself, we put them in groups with their programs so that to in part to try to, to lessen the anxiety of that. But there are, there are always, it's always the same people <laughs> who are, are trying to be competitive or who are, instead of looking and asking themselves hard questions, they're like, oh, well, this is because this contextual issue, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so it's really hard because you're working with the, you know, different programs have different cultures and different willingness to look at 
and really look at their work and examine it. And, you know, we're doing, apart from this work, uh, work on formative feedback and doing surveys of participants and programs. And the first two programs that did it were really open and have been grateful for the feedback and have, um, willing to consider it. And there's another program that was supposed to go this year and they, they just couldn't do it. And so it, it's really a hard thing, I think, in my position, because how do you get people to do something that they're, how do you shift that culture? Right. And I haven't come up with a, a great solution to that other than just trying to model with the programs that are more open and keep having these conversations. And hopefully at some point, the cultures will shift. I mean, you know, some of it comes from the managers involved in the different programs. I think if the managers are are modeling, you know, let's let's take a look at this and let's learn from this. The field staff are going to take it very differently, but it's really hard. And I would love if anybody listening to this has suggestions, I would love to hear them. Does EPC have control over staffing of, of each of the programs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you guys are the ones identifying the managers and field workers, mm-hmm. et cetera. Okay. Yeah, the executive director has the ultimate control on that. Yeah. Right. And then, but I mean, a lot of the hiring decisions, I mean, I think she has the ultimate control, but there's other people who, you know, each program does its own hiring, which has its pros and its, its pluses and its minuses, right? Because of the program, it, it, the, the rich keep getting richer right? Because of the culture of the programs. And then, yeah, I think that's just the reality. So the integrated logic model and having like a central data repository puts you guys in a really good position to have this like bird's eye view of Mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you share that data out with the programs and talk, you know, dig into the data and start to make decisions based on the data. Yeah. So when I first came, I was asked to make a presentation to the staff, which I did about the different programs. And then everybody clapped and and that was that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm a former teacher and it just didn't sit very well because it was very much the sage on the stage, right? And so then I went to a conference where I, I learned about data placemats and I thought, wow, this is a really great idea. And so I presented it to the executive director, Maria Rocha Ruiz, and, and she said, sure, try it. And um, so this is what we do now. And it's a whole process. And I'm going to walk you through the whole process because all of it is really important to making it work. So a data placemat is... It, what it, what we've done is put, you hope we try to do it on one two-sided page. Sometimes it's legal size, but, um, and put a programs. It depends. We've looked at college going and we've also looked at activities. So the services, sorry. So we have some questions at the top about, you know, does anything strike you about this? What surprises you about this data? Is anything, you know, do you think if it's a services, for instance, do you think that each service is receiving enough depth to impact results as and is each service being provided across the board like across the students or parents sufficiently across the board to make an impact and then we have the actual we have graphs of the data so that we what we do is we divide the participants by into groups of three to five by program 
And at first, we actually sometimes put data, especially on the college going for across the EPC, like each program was received data for all the programs. And then one of the assistant directors actually said, could you please stop doing that? Because it's, you know, we have a different funding levels, we have different mandates, and we some of the staff feel really badly then. And I was like, that's an excellent point. So we stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. So they get the data for their program in their group. And so, and so they sit in their groups. And the reason that I think it's really important to have these small groups is that it really, you know, there's people who speak in large groups and they're, it's always the same people raising their hands to speak or just speaking, right? Um, but when you divide it into a smaller group, people tend to be more engaged. They have more ownership. Oftentimes they're not as afraid to make a, ask a question if they don't understand something or to provide their insights. So they're really collaborating together and and building off of each other's ideas. Again, this is all coming back to when I was a teacher. Um, I randomly assign each group member a role. So there's a leader, there's a presenter, there's a scribe, et cetera. Right? And so the reason to do that is to erode racial and gendered role assignments, stereotypical gendered and racial role assignments, to give people kind of parameters for participation to foster individual accountability and to provide occasions for high quality interactions. So, you know, if you look at this and strengthen people's community communication skills. So if you look at the research, if you have a group of diverse people, it's the lighter skinned people who are going to more often take the leadership roles. And, or if there's a gendered mixed group, it's, the women who are going to be the ones writing things down and typically and the men who are taking the leadership roles or it's the quieter people who are writing things down and it's the more extroverted people taking the leadership roles and so we're really trying to break some of that down and give each of a person an opportunity to shine and to have their ideas included because it's not just because you're extroverted doesn't necessarily mean that you have the best ideas right Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because I'm in this national task force and, you know, it was the woman taking the notes. Like, <laughs> like stop, you know, I mean, this has to stop. Um, and then I display, because we're having, we have these different norms and, you know, we have new people coming into staff. I put this all up on a PowerPoint slide so that the visual learners can also access this information. And then we go over a sample graphs so that people who are not as used to working with graphs or have not taken statistics or are new to the center, we talk about how to, you know, read a graph and then understanding of the questions that they're being answered, asked to answer. And then I, we pass out the placemats. My team is always there to help. I have graduate students and a full-time employee who help me. And then before anybody speaks with their graphs, I actually have everybody write down their thoughts. And this is, again, trying to, for some people have really quick processing speed and some people have slower processing speed. So this is to give everybody the opportunity to have their ideas written down before they start talking. Again, trying to get everybody to be an equal participant and then people talk in their groups. And these conversations have been so rich and it's actually really hard to get people to stop talking. Um, and they're talking about contextual things or they're talking about different 
kids' reactions to different activities or, you know, it just, it's because so often their days are so full that they don't even have time to sit down and talk in this way, much less with data in front of them. And then we discuss, we bring up a level and, and people share out from their groups and also talk about common, so especially when programs are in the same districts, talk about some different insights. For instance, one of our districts is a, it's a rural district in Monterey County and they have a big prison there. And so it was really interesting to see that that district, it's part of a couple of grants, but they, their outcomes were stronger. But then we realized because of the, the prison there, more people, more adults had stable jobs and more adults, the higher percentage had a high school diploma and realizing that even though it's, it's just, you know, right there in the same community, those kids actually had some advantages that other kids in the next town over didn't. And that's one of the, an example of something that came from these conversations. That's fascinating. Cause I think you, like you're saying, you would not have noticed that and been able without this type of conversation to have mm-hmm. those sort of comparison, contrasting, what are you seeing? Why would this be different? And just start to look under rocks as to like, well, you know, why are we seeing what we're seeing in the data? How frequently do you do the data placement reviews? We've been doing once a year for services and once a year for college going. So it's actually what we tried at the college going, we, we don't get the college going data from the National Student Clearinghouse until November. It's just not available. Mm-hmm. So we try to do it December, or January. And then we also try mid-year to do a services one because that way the, the programs can see, okay, these are the services we provided to these people through the halfway. Let's plan what we're going to do for the rest of the school year. So that, again, we try to do in January or February. Mm-hmm. You gave a lot of really good tips for like how to run like mm. a data placement conversation. Mm-hmm. But I just want to back up because I'm not entirely clear on like the goal or intention that you guys are collectively going in with. Is it to, and it might be, they're not mutually exclusive. Is it to like validate the data? Is it to make sure staff understand the data? Is it to make decisions based on the data? You know, like I'm wondering how you frame the conversation so that you kind of know what you're driving towards at the end. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. The goal is to understand the data and to use it to plan for the future. That's why we do it at a halfway point. But yeah, it's to understand what is going on with the data. And also, I mean, you know, again, for newcomers or people who are not as familiar with using data, it's also, okay, let's facilitate their understanding of how they can be using data to inform their practice. Mm -hmm. Can you give like one or two examples of like tangible actions that Mm -hmm. programs have taken as a result of doing the data review? Mm -hmm. Sure. So one of the really interesting things that came out of doing the data review is that a lot more of our students are going to UC Davis than to UC Santa Cruz. And they're going to UC Davis and California State University in Monterey Bay and not here. So what we've been doing is actually working with the admissions office to try to pinpoint what's happening, you know, what are the kids getting accepted? Are they even applying to UC Santa Cruz? And also to work with them to create more outreach to our students so that the kids even consider UC Santa Cruz as a viable option. On a more individual level, people, for instance, 
decided to run a report to see, okay, which parents have I worked with already and how can I target these other parents? You know, let's think about what they can do. Or one service provider, field staff member realized that they hadn't really hit the eighth grade. So, okay, what can I do to work more towards including kids from the eighth grade when I'm working in the school? So thinking about specific, noticing who has received services, who has not received services, and thinking about ways to target those who have not received services. I'm curious what challenges you've run up against doing these meetings. Are there, again, are there people who feel defensive? Are there people who just don't want to collaborate in this type of way, maybe because they're feeling territorial? I'm just I want the gossip. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think those two are, you know, people who are defensive and who always want, and then I guess also just, and, and it really comes from, and it's truly is a more successful program for a number of reasons, including the way the kids are selected and things like that. But kind of that group say, you know, always, well, we're doing great. You know, I mean, you guys are great. But there's also some other reasons for that. And it's just also, I, I start every time by saying the programs are different. We have a range of services, a range of funding, a range of ways that we get kids involved. Keep that in mind when you're talking. And every time this program talks about how great they're doing, <laughs> it's just really hard. You know, it's just, I mean, and they are, I mean, they're one of the programs that's really open and really reflective. And that also is really contributing that their students self-select in. They have classes for that program, which is, you know, they have a curriculum for that program. They have after-school clubs for that program. There's a lot of other things that are playing into it that are helping contribute to their success. So that's hard. And then, of course, other people become more defensive because they hear how great they're doing, too, without the yes, but right. the caveat. So that, yeah, it's, that makes it difficult. I mean, I don't think that people realize what they're doing. They're super happy, right? Because they're doing well, but just keep it on the down low a little bit. Are they seeing the data ahead of time? Like how far in advance? So you're giving it to them raw, right? Mm -hmm. In, in, Mm -hmm. on the placemat and they're reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, if I gave it to them in advance, I wish I could say that I thought that they would all look at it, but I, I, I honestly don't <laughs> believe that. So yeah, no, it's in the moment. I mean, and it's it's a long staff meeting when we do it to give them time to really look at it and talk about it. And, yeah, about and how long? Together. At least two to three hours. Okay. Yeah, it seems like the right amount of time, especially if yeah. they're having to digest it first and then react to it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we're always available to answer any questions afterwards. Or And we always do also exit slips to, to see what went well, what we could improve. And, and the third question on the exit slip is, how are you going to use this data to inform your practice? But the truth is that then I wish that I, I was doing more follow-up, but I'm, I, I'm not. It's not like I'm not able to do that, but I think it would be great to do more and, and ask them you know, come back a few months later and say, so what have you done? <laughs> you know, so that people know that they, they're expected to do something with it. You got to get a graduate student on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I already have my graduate students doing so many other things. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Well, I feel like 
Rebecca asked the Debbie Downer question and now I have to ask like an end on a positive note question. So can you um, give like maybe like an example or two of um, where like two programs within a portfolio like learned from each other or cross collaborated Mm -hmm. on something? Yeah. So I actually would, I'm going to change that question a little bit and talk about how they realized that when the two programs are in the same school that the the effects are more powerful. So we have two programs, EAOP and Gear Up, who work in in similar schools. And they realized the EAOP, when Gear Up was, Gear Up is a cohort program. So you go with two grades at a time and they start in sixth and then they end in 12th. And so when Gear Up left the school that the EAOP outcomes weren't as robust, and another example is actually when Europe was in a school, MESA got more participants in their program so that they saw that there was actually tangible outcomes to having the two programs in the schools. Oh, yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. Like, it definitely makes sense. Sometimes we've seen some programs, um, like if there's too much going on in a school, it can like, yeah. the opposite yes. can happen, but it's... yes nice that you can like see a correlation between those two programs like feeding off of each other that's great and i would say that that's where you want the integrated logic model also right because you want to make sure that this because yeah that's really common especially in underserved schools right that you have a 500 programs they're changing every two years and and they're not working together and that's where the bringing it that's the brilliance of the integrated logic model and Catherine cooper's work right it, just bringing it all together and making sure that the programs are working together towards the same goals. And again, like Europe and E and MESA, Europe is one of the college access programs and some academic reinforcements. And MESA is a science program. So they didn't have they didn't overlap in all of their goals. I mean, the goal of serving underserved kids and getting them to college, definitely. But you know, MESA has its STEM focus. But even then, you could see that they were working together. Very cool. But yeah, I think that that's that a lot of underserved schools could really use the integrated logic model to help them focus their work and um, mm-hmm. and serve their students. Yeah, principals have a tough job. They get like a lot of activities, programs get paraded in front of them, and then they have to make these choices about what are they going to mm-hmm. devote attention to and resources to and teachers' time to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's something we should explore, but I'd be really interested to know, like, to, I, I don't, I'm going to go out on a limb. Maybe this is a controversial statement, but like not a lot of principals are, <laughs> have integrated logic models for their schools. Right. And, right. you know, but I do imagine that some are being, are trying to be really thoughtful about what they're bringing into the school and mm-hmm. how they're mm-hmm. carving up everybody's time and attention, especially now. I mean, we're seeing mm-hmm. so many principals having to make hard choices as we go to distance learning you're not going to be in a school. So like, if I'm going to prioritize my teacher's time, like what do they have to absolutely have? Uh, Like what's non-negotiable, you know, what's proven to be effective, you know, what programs may bring back, et cetera. Like there's just like a host of decisions, but sometimes it can seem, it's hard to know how much of it is gut and how much of it is um, data-based. Right. Yes. At that level, because each school is kind of its own fiefdom often. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yes. (laughs) Anywho, 
Well, you've been super gracious with your time. I know we're kind of going a few minutes over, but we really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us. And I think this is what the work that you guys are doing is like so relevant. I, I mean, across the board, like when I think about nonprofits running multiple programs, they could be thinking about an integrated logic model. You know, we have seen that some are, but you know, many aren't. Foundations are more naturally apt to kind of look this mm-hmm. with this lens um, because they have portfolios and they're investing their own money, and so they're like, "What are we getting for our money?" So, mm-hmm. foundations, I think, are there's a more clear like line uh, through line from what you're saying uh, to like w- the work that they do. But I I just want to underscore for any of those nonprofits that are out there, other evaluators working independently. I think we can try to help the nonprofits that we work with kind of think in these terms, you know, like think more holistically about their programs and the impact that they're having. So thanks for shining a spotlight on it. Oh, you're very welcome. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that's a wrap with our West Coast kindred spirit, Teresa. For next month's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Rebecca and I will actually be in conversation with each other about a year and a half long project that our team undertook with a private family foundation. Now, we're not ones to like promote our own work on the podcast. I mean, we'd much, much rather talk with and learn from others. Or, you know, if we are in conversation with each other, we're sharing, you know, themes of things that we're grappling with and working through in our professional lives. But, you know, we're going to make an exception for this project because we do think that listeners will find it interesting. The project contributes new thinking in the field of education related to two types of programs. Uh, The first type of program is mentoring teachers in training, and the second is providing supports to teachers and students through the addition of another adult in the classroom. So it was a really unique opportunity to play with some interesting research questions. So we think that evaluators will find it interesting from that perspective. And then, of course, if you're a nonprofit professional working in one of those two program areas I just mentioned, you'll you'll definitely be interested in tuning in. So as always, thank you so, so much for joining us. We respect and appreciate your time. We hope you've learned something. If you have comments or feedback, contact us through our website, glassfrog.us, or say hi on Twitter. We are at glass frog tweets all one word and we'll see you in the the ether until next time <laughs>